Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast that takes you on adventures to the edge of knowledge. While not everyone wants to be in a relationship, the trials of singledom are many. Trying to cook a meal for one without overdoing the portion size, the tendency to go a bit feral, the worry that in old age there'll be nobody to bicker under your breath with in restaurants. Many of us spend years looking for love, hoping for a serendipitous encounter, and dating apps have become a handy way of forcing the hand of chance. But could science make it even easier? If you had, or are having, a wild youth, you may have dabbled in taking recreational drugs such as MDMA or its pill-form ecstasy, perhaps noticing a sense of glowing warmth towards and desire for intimacy with complete strangers. Scientists are now exploring the therapeutic value of MDMA, which is likely to get FDA approval in the United States, and other psychoactive drugs such as psilocybin, which is found in magic mushrooms. Some researchers believe that this research could extend to creating drugs that actually help you fall in love. A glass of water, a little round tablet and hey presto, chocolate boxes, roses, romance. Or is this soft focus dream really that simple? Love is one of the most complex emotions and sensations and is arguably one of the things that makes us truly human, inspiring art, poetry, music and thousands of hours moping down the pub when it all goes wrong. Today on Why, we're looking at My Chemical Romance. Can we program love with a pill? And even if we can, should we? We're just trying to grapple with those kinds of questions, you know. Is the love that comes through a drug-mediated experience real? Or is it just a fantasy or a facsimile of love? Brian D. Earp is Senior Research Fellow in the Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford and co-author of Love is the Drug, The Chemical Future of Our Relationships. I mean, part of what's going on here, I think, is just that as a culture, we don't really know what we mean by love. And sometimes we conflate it with just a strong feeling. There are definitely medications, chemicals, drugs that can influence our subjective feeling of being in love. You can talk about that at a low level, about what's happening in the brain, how things like lust or attraction or attachment are being affected. But once you say love, people start to get skeptical and they want to know how could some mere chemical influence something that we take to be so complicated, so poetic as love. It seems like it's almost a category error. And so depending on your account of love, there's a pathway between manipulations in the brain and that complex phenomenon. But some people would prefer to talk about what's happening at the lower level and then leave it to the individual or the couple to see how that plays out for love in their life. What would the love pill likely contain to work and how would it work on the mind and the body? Well, you already mentioned MDMA, which works by causing the massive release of serotonin in the brain and keeping serotonin in play between neurons. And that's one drug that pretty quickly induces a subjective feeling of warmth, of being drawn toward people. Some would characterize what they're feeling as phenomenologically similar to or even identical to a kind of early stage romantic love where you feel really obsessed with a person and, and you feel really warm toward them and drawn toward them. So that's one possible route. And as you mentioned in the intro, this drug is now being trialed as an aid to psychotherapy for some very serious mental health conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And most of the current work is done with individuals. So the person comes in, they meet with the research team, they have a drug-assisted psychotherapy session, and then you measure the outcomes on their symptoms of PTSD. But back in the 80s, before MDMA and some of the psychedelic drugs like psilocybin that you mentioned were made illegal based on activity in the U.S. from the Drug Enforcement Agency and others, these drugs were being used in, in couples counseling. And so that's kind of in a, a different context where instead of looking at how it's influencing me and my feelings and my symptoms, what's going on personally, there was this relational dynamic that had to be taken into consideration. And some people expressed that when they'd fallen into a rut in their partnership with somebody they'd known for a long time, they didn't feel that they could really see the partner's perspective. They were just going on a loop of you say something and it bothers me and I get you know, mumbling under my breath, the bickering that you you alluded to, MDMA could kind of shake up the snow globe a little bit and allow them to suspend some of those automatic responses to see each other's perspective a little bit better. And in some cases, it would rekindle a kind of affectionate love and connection that they hadn't felt before. So, you know, with my co-author, Julian Savalescu, we wrote this book to try to say, if we're going to be bringing these powerful drugs into mainstream society through medicine, like MDMA or psilocybin, we shouldn't only be looking at the individual level effects. We should be looking at how they affect relationships because we're all embedded in relationships. And there's good reason to think both pharmacologically and due to these historical examples that one of the things that these drugs may influence is the quality or the feeling of love between us and our partners. So MDMA is already being used in these situations. Do you think it would be possible to develop a drug, a love pill, as it were, that was a, a different drug or perhaps a, an adaptation of MDMA that could bring about the feeling of love in people? Yes. So that's already happening. There are biomedical companies, startups that are trying to find analogs to MDMA or drugs that are just slightly different so they can patent them, basically. MDMA is not something you can patent anymore. It was introduced by Merck in 1920 or so. I think it's been around for a long time. And so there are companies that are trying to figure out how can we get our own version of this medication. Now, whether they're going to go so far as to call it a love pill is unclear. There are other drugs that influence our interpersonal feelings or how we relate to those uh, we're in relationships with, some of which are commonly used medications like SSRIs, which is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And this is the most commonly prescribed medication for depression and in many cases for anxiety. And, you know, these drugs interact with our brains in complex ways. And so one point to make is that there isn't going to ever be just one love pill that somehow works in a deterministic way to directly bring about a state that we would be willing to call love in everybody. It's going to be a number of different chemicals that interact on the brain in complex ways probably have lots of side effects, probably affect other aspects of our cognition and our emotions and our lives. And it's going to depend on what's going on with any particular couple, whether that's going to facilitate satisfaction in the relationship. You know, libido or lust is a fairly well-studied system, and testosterone and estrogen can pretty directly and radically affect this aspect of our biochemistry. And so, you know, you might be in a couple where one of the partners has a higher or a lower sex drive than the other. And let's say they've decided to be monogamous, they want to have a sexually exclusive relationship, but there's this big mismatch in their respective desires. It's possible that Libido could be dialed up or dialed down. And finally, it's possible to intervene in the system that processes oxytocin, which is a, a brain chemical that acts as a neurotransmitter and a hormone. And this has sometimes been called a love hormone because it's centrally implicated in our attachment bonds that we form. And this is true in other mammal species, not just in humans. So 
Oxytocin and vasopressin can be synthesized in a lab. There are a whole bunch of studies where you can spray these chemicals through your nose into your brain. And they've measured some short-term effects, but some people suggest that there may be ways of having more uh, robust interventions into the oxytocin system, which might be related to our feelings of attachment. So you can start to see it's, it's a messy picture. There's different drugs that do different things that interact with different subsystems of our relational brains. And how that adds up to love is going to depend on what is going on for a given person or couple. And I suppose what we're talking about here is often within pre-existing couples rather than this idea that two people who perhaps weren't in love could take a pill that would cause them to fall in love. Well, again, there are tons of anecdotes from the 1980s of people at raves or festivals using MDMA and feeling like anyway that they were falling in love with strangers. And there were some bumper stickers that went around at the time that warned against instant marriage syndrome, where people would feel that they'd made this cosmic connection with somebody and they'd rush off and they want to solidify that bond with a lifelong commitment. And then the drug wears off and the high of the festival wears off. And some weeks later, months later, you find out that maybe we're not all that compatible. <laughs> and so that's a real concern. I mean, Normally, if we rely on our own brain chemistry, as it were, fall in love with someone or develop love with someone, it's done in concert with other things that we're doing with them, like spending time with them, learning about them, finding out what they're all about, what they care about, meeting their family or whatever it might be. And so if you hasten that process beyond the underlying architecture to actually support a relationship, you can get these really unstable situations that could be quite traumatic. So we talk about in the book that the, the most plausible, prudent use of these drugs now or in the future would be in the context of a well-established couple that has a good reason to think there's some use to pursuing the relationship and that, you know, if the drug could facilitate the couple's therapy they would be doing anyway, make them more receptive to the lessons of that kind of therapy, then it seems like that might be useful. But we caution against the willy-nilly use of these drugs to, you know, profoundly change the way that we relate to people we may not be compatible with. I suppose it works in the same way in relationships that haven't had that sort of... Ex I find that bumper sticker story absolutely fascinating. But I guess you meet someone and sometimes there can be an intense sexual connection that you realise that that was the only connection and that fades after time as well. It's just the drugs are just replicating what we already have within romantic attachment and sexual attachment with others. Yeah, so MDMA, in addition to causing a flood of serotonin also releases oxytocin. And oxytocin is this sort of bonding chemical. And some people are susceptible to after, you know, one or a few sexual encounters with someone, which is also releases a ton of dopamine, which is a reward signaling chemical, they may feel a attachment form pretty quickly. I mean, part of what's going on here, I think, is just that as a culture, we don't really know what we mean by love. And sometimes we conflate it with just a strong feeling. And then when we have a strong feeling and we've been reading newspapers and watching movies and hearing about how people talk about love, if we think it's just a strong feeling, then we're, we're liable to be misled. If we think of love as something like a relational disposition that lasts through time and comes along with certain expectations or commitments or something like that, then we'd be more inclined to think of these rush of feelings as, you know, lust or excitement or something like that. But we wouldn't imbue it with the seriousness of the word love. So there's a lot of different chemical and psychological effects that make up love as we conceive it. And that's also shaped by cultural forces too. Absolutely. I mean, the account of love that we give in the book is a sort of biopsychosocial account of love that's derived from different accounts. Carrie Jenkins has a book called What Love Is that we draw heavily on. It's a great book and it's worth reading. But basically she makes the point that you can't just reduce love down to brain chemicals. Maybe there's some level of description where if you had some God's eye view and you could look at every particle or something like that and you can build it up and figure out how does that relate to love, you could do it. But 
you know, that would still require a concept of love that you're connecting those lower level descriptions to. And so what counts as love is going to be subject to sociocultural and historical forces. A really good example would be in homophobic societies, the idea that same-sex attraction or relationships could constitute a loving relationship has been seen as ridiculous or risable. Love only can happen between a man and a woman. And that has very real consequences because then if you're a a same-sex couple in a homophobic society and you can't go out and hold hands together on the street, well, that's going to influence the situations under which you can release oxytocin together and form a certain kind of bond. Or maybe you're going to have feelings of shame that are going to interfere with your libido, which is going to interfere with the other types of chemicals that go along with uh, sexual interaction. And then finally, there's the psychological element, which is just what does it feel like? And this is also subject to both brain-level neurochemical factors and societal factors. Because if I want to identify something I'm feeling as love, I have to have at least some sort of vague idea of what love is. And where am I going to get that idea? Often from movies or literature or poetry or whatever. And again, where it's often conflated with a strong feeling. So if that's the idea of love that's floating around in your culture and you have that really strong feeling, you might well subjectively label what you're going through as love. Whether that's something that is a good idea or something we should promote in the culture is a, is a separate ethical question. So we've heard about the pharmacological side of developing a love pill, as well as the issues it throws up regarding consent. But this isn't a new invention. Love potions, charms and rituals go back throughout our history. An ancient Egyptian love spell written on papyrus was found to be 13,000 years old. Think about the sort of chemical and neurological reaction to drugs used in the research environment, people having their brains scanned while being given drugs and so on, and the current research that's going on into psychedelics and MDMA. Is it possible to look at the responses to these drugs and how the brain works with feelings of love and to see which parts of the brain are stimulated and so on? Is, is that scientifically possible? Is, is that happening in the research? There has been a lot of work, most of it associated with Helen Fisher, who's a biological anthropologist, and Art Aaron and others, who try to correlate subjective feelings of love with activity in the brain that's distinctive. And they might do this, for example, by showing a photograph of someone who you report having romantic, strong feelings of early stage romantic attraction to or attachment to with, you know, somebody that you know just as well, but they're a platonic friend. And then they'll kind of subtract the brain activity in the one case from the other while you're looking at these images under a scanner and they'll try to identify regions that are involved, which invariably include certain dopaminergic regions that have to do with signaling reward, uh, regions that are associated with oxytocin activity and so forth. So again, it just brings us back to whether we think, you know, learning about what's happening in the brain when we report feeling in love teaches us something about love itself. One thing it might do is it, it just makes us aware that love is, whatever else it is, grounded in our bodies in a certain kind of a way. And so if you think of love as something that happens in the soul or something that just happens to you, happens in your mind or something like that, I think we have a, a sort of dualism that we carry with us from our early ages where we distinguish between, you know, bodies and souls. And we often associate love with the soul part. But I think what this work that Helen Fisher and others are doing is serving at least as a useful reminder that we can't forget the biological component of love and that certain drugs that we take for other purposes, medications or these new drugs that are being trialed as part of the psychedelic renaissance, those are going to have 
biologically mediated implications for our experiences of love. And we should be measuring those and caring about those, not just consigning them to anecdotes and hoping for the best. I think it's that thing when you're first falling in love as a teenager or first having sexual experiences in that young age when it's all new, you do feel it in the body, don't you? There's a sort of twinging feeling, which maybe slightly goes as you, as you get older and you think, am I really in love? Because I don't have that intense physical reaction. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there are also body-based accounts of love that go back for a long time. I mean, love was often seen as a kind of a sickness or an illness that could or should be treated, especially if it was seen as a threat to the social order. And so, you know, there's there's often been metaphors and different concepts that people use to try to make sense of this intense subjective feeling. But for many people, as you say, it's just obviously a very embodied thing. And then if you don't have that visceral feeling, you may worry that you've you've lost what you had labeled as love. Do you think there's a way that these existing drugs or perhaps hypothetical ones in the future could kind of override social conditioning when it comes to sexuality? I've always felt that people are a lot more sexually fluid than they're willing to admit to themselves or society decides. Could drugs override homophobia and override prejudice in that way? That's really interesting. I was actually talking to a researcher the other day who's involved with some of this new uh, psychedelic science. And they told a personal story of, of having had a psychedelic experience with a, a friend who would characterize himself as straight. And after the experience together, there was this removal of certain kinds of barriers to intimacy that made that person suddenly wonder whether maybe he could have same-sex attraction. And he was you know, struck that the usual categories through which he viewed his own feelings were softened. And so you know, one thing that some classical psychedelics seem to do is they at least temporarily depress or suppress certain well-worn categories that we use to interpret the world. And so if we're used to categorizing things certain ways, you're gay, you're straight, and if that comes along with prejudice attitudes like you're alluding to, you know, if you take a, a drug that sort of softens those categories and allows you to see other people more just as fellow human beings and, and be more attentive to individual level details, there's, there's a possibility that this could you know, relax some categories that might be good to relax. On the other hand, psychedelics can cause us to relax categories that we might want to retain. So there's increasing accounts coming out of the psychedelic underground of instances of uh, sexual abuse between guides and clients or, or seekers or followers or whatever you want to call them. If I have my categories so relaxed that I think conventional notions of morality don't apply to me or sexual boundaries are an illusion, then it can lead to abusive situations when the drug wears off and you're forced to grapple with the complexity of the society that we all live in, which requires certain boundaries to stay intact. Is there then an ethical question about how these drugs, if they become licensed and we can use them and sort of obviously move from a therapeutical context into a sort of commercial context, how we regulate them, how their use is managed in that way? Yeah, I'm working with colleagues who are fellow ethicists to try to develop some frameworks for that very purpose, because right now there's a lot of excitement about the science. There are these business interests that are swooping in, big pharma is trying to figure out how it can get a piece of the action. But there hasn't been as much investment in the ethical conversations about how exactly are we going to regulate these powerful drugs to make sure that the benefits like treatment for PTSD, which are profound from what it looks like, at least for some people in these, in these early trials, are not outweighed by serious risks of abuse, of people having their sense of self dissolved and then not really getting it integrated back and put back together in a way that can be really scary. I know at least one person who had a, a very 
poor psychedelic experience with someone they describe as an abusive therapist who just feels like they're not a person anymore. And they can't even use the I pronoun because they don't know what that's referring to because their mind was dismantled through these drugs and not put back together under, again, you know, unethical therapeutic circumstances. And, you know, that shouldn't be conflated with the kinds of studies that are being done in a very careful and controlled way. But once these things come out of the lab and you don't have the elaborate ethical controls and regulations and so forth. And these drugs are being released into the mass culture, including to some people who may be naive about them or may not be adequately educated about the risks, then they're very serious risks. So we need to get out ahead of the, the psychedelic ethics issue, which is coming around the corner. Do you feel that at some point we will see a new drug that is a kind of love pill or what have you? Do you think it's within the realms of possibility in the relatively near future? I think it's extremely likely. I know one medical entrepreneur who at one point was actively developing a, a drug that was to be characterized as a love drug, it would have probably been a, an analog of MDMA. I think that this entrepreneur got a little bit scared off by the ethical problems, thinking about, well, you know, would that lead to abuse? Or would people have concerns about authenticity? Is this really love? And it starts to get really complex. You know, this whole book that we wrote is however many hundreds of pages it is, and we're just trying to grapple with those kinds of questions, you know, is the love that comes through a drug-mediated experience real? Or is it just a fantasy or a facsimile of love? And so as far as I understand, this one entrepreneur has sort of put that project on pause. But I've heard from others that there are chemicals being developed in, in other contexts that, you know, whether they're called love drugs or not, maybe they informally will be called that way. I think it's not implausible that some companies will, for marketing purposes, come right out and offer their MDMA analog as a couple's therapy drug, and they might talk about it as a love drug. If there are these drugs that can sort of make people fall in love with you, if they are commercially available and these can be handed out, where's the line in consent with that? Because it seems to me that they could be abused in the, like Rehypnol is, for example, a date rate drug. And it's almost like it's like a, a date rate drug with an extra dangerous element where there's an emotional imposition as well. Well, that is one risk. It's unethical and illegal to administer any kind of drug to somebody without their knowledge and consent. But even in situations where it seems like there's consent, like somebody's taking it in the context of a therapeutic session with their partner, sometimes people may not fully understand what's at stake because some of these experiences, especially if you talk about some of the psychedelic drugs like psilocybin, which is also being used as an adjunct for therapy, some people have what they describe as transformative experiences where they almost feel like a different person on the other end of the experience. And it might be that they you know, feel like their relationship has fundamentally changed in a certain kind of a way. And there's a real philosophical challenge, but also a practical ethical challenge about whether someone can, even in principle, consent to something that they can't currently imagine. By definition, if you've been transformed in a certain kind of way, you, you don't know what it's like on the other side until you're there. So I would say, you know, the case of slipping somebody a drug against their will is just straightforward. It's not a complicated issue. It's wrong and it's illegal. But I would say that the really challenging questions about consent are going to be the ones where somebody says, yes, I agree to undergo this experience, but it's not clear that they fully understand what they're signing up to. And I think that that's a, a real problem. It's going to happen. I mean, some people are now suggesting that we should be doing like VR enhanced informed consent, where you kind of have a virtual reality experience that gets you as close as you can get to what it might feel like to be in a highly altered state of mind. Whether even that's sufficient is up for debate. Is there a risk that we sort of lose the jeopardy that comes with love and relationships? You know, do you really know yourself until you've had your heart broken? I could probably do with not 
knowing myself quite as well as I have over the years, all the, all the messes that have gone on. Is there a sort of a risk where you could take a pill and then always be able to fix a relationship when sometimes they're just no good and you need to move on from them? Definitely. So if you're thinking of, you know, you're in a relationship with someone and you're really not well suited to each other, but you're, you want to slap a Band-Aid on or something like that to try to just struggle through and limp along in the relationship, that could be really toxic. That could be bad. So it's unavoidable that we're going to have to deal with the questions of value. Like, what is a good relationship? What is a relationship that's worth trying to work on? And, you know, people will disagree. There's probably a range of opinions. But as a society, we don't really talk about that. In movies, for example, love is often depicted in high conflict situations because that's more exciting to watch a, a movie about a relationship that's struggling than about one that just is really happy and, and sustainable and successful. Who would watch a film about that? And so we don't have really rich conversations about what is a good and a healthy relationship or which are relationships that, you know, have really crossed the line or become abusive or toxic in some way. And maybe they really need to end. So this is the time to have that conversation, because now if you're going to add drugs into the mix and you're going to have people who have, you know, potentially power dynamics in a relational context, you know, suggesting maybe we should take this drug to, you know, stay together. You've got to first answer the question, should you stay together? And that's something that you have to figure out, you know, irrespective of whether you're going to be using a drug or not. So, we can't ask the doctor for love on prescription just yet, although it is possible for drugs to help heal rifts within existing relationships. We all know Leonard Cohen was right when he sang, There Ain't No Cure For Love. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Brian Earp. My pleasure. Love is the Drug by Brian Earp and Julian Savulescu is available now. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time. Why? was written and presented by Luke Turner. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. 